0: LinkedIn presents.
1: I'm Rufus Griscom and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, what you and I need to do now to live a long, happy, healthy life. have something unusual for you today. For the first time in over three years of putting out the Next Big Idea podcast every single week, we are sharing a two-hour conversation with one individual over the next two episodes, part one and part two. Why are we breaking precedent? Well, Peter Atia, our guest today, is an unprecedented guy. For those of you who haven't heard of him, Peter Atia is a Stanford and NIH-trained physician, a longevity expert whose podcast has been downloaded over 60 million times, and the first guy to swim more than 17 miles from Maui to the island of Lanai and back again over open water. He is also, those facts notwithstanding, a human being, a fellow mortal who has struggled with health setbacks a botched back surgery and a family history of heart disease that's resulted in the early death of many of his male relatives, often in their 40s and 50s. Like so many of us, Peter has done his best to absorb available data and make informed decisions about how to eat, sleep, exercise, and live a happy, long, balanced life. Peter's process, however, as a trained physician turned McKinsey consultant turned longevity expert, has been a bit more intense than most of ours. He has become, in the last few decades, one of the leading experts on the science of longevity in the world, and the author of the new number one New York Times bestseller, Outlive the Science and Art of Longevity. Over the course of our two-hour conversation, we talk about the shortcomings of modern medicine, how lifestyle contributes to premature death, and his prescriptions for achieving peak fitness, nutrition, sleep hygiene, and mental health. Peter's book in our conversation has already, in the last few weeks, meaningfully changed how I approach my daily diet and exercise regime. If you want to be able to, let's say, open a jar, carry groceries, and maybe have sex when you're 90 years old, and be at the peak of your health potential today, and I have to think that's all of us, this conversation will give you the tools you need to live your life to the fullest.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off.
1: Peter Atia, it is great to have you on the Next Big Idea podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Peter, you have built an unusual and extraordinary career. Um, Your own personal journey seems to me to be essential to the story. Here are a few salient facts, and feel free to add and subtract from this list. You were an athlete as a teenager, a boxer. You went to medical school at Stanford, then residency at Johns Hopkins, you suffered from a botched back surgery, I think it was in your 20s, which sounded pretty scary, pretty humbling. You left Johns Hopkins after going frustrated with the, what you described as the culture of resistance to innovation and joined the McKinsey Healthcare Practice advising companies. You were the first person to make the round trip swim from Maui to Lanai and back, which is astonishing to me having snorkeled those waters. You found yourself, nonetheless, in your thirties with a dad bod that you you say uh, squeezed your sausage-like body into shirts, (laughs) which which stuck with me. You realize many of the men in your family died young in their forties and fifties due to heart disease. You built this kind of highly original medical practice with a holistic, long-term approach to improving health span. You've now written a number one New York Times bestselling book, Outlive: The Science and Art of Longevity, which, as you say, is a a beast of a book. How do you think about your your personal journey? And do you see the setbacks that you've encountered along the way as critical to your path and your success?
2: Yes, I absolutely do. Um, and I, I think the, you know, look, I, I can only comment on what I've experienced. So I can't really sort of speculate on what parallel universes look like. But I know that what I'm doing today doesn't fall out neatly from any sort of traditional medical training. Uh, If someone today asks me, which I get asked all the time by people who are, you know, in college or medical school saying, Peter, I I like what you do and I want to be doing that. What's the path? It's not Mm -hmm. entirely obvious. It's probably not doing what I did. I mean, my path couldn't have been more bizarre, but It's not like there's a specialty that you would do and say, well, I want to practice medicine 3.0 as my specialty. So after medical school, I'll do this residency. And I generally say, look, you know, probably doing internal medicine makes the most sense, but acknowledge the fact that you're going to have to do most of your learning outside of your training. Um, You're still going to have to learn the, the finer points of nutrition and exercise and sleep and true prevention outside of the 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 confines of you know a medicine 2.0 system in which we're still training. And so in that sense yes I think whatever setbacks I had you mentioned many of them of course I can look at every one of them now and say actually there's there's a there's a, a net positive that's come from all of them including as much as I it's hard to admit sometimes but I mean the, the botched back surgery for example I mean wow. I, I probably yeah. still pay a price for that I will for the rest of my life always be at higher risk for requiring a fusion, um, which is something I would desperately like to avoid. But at the same time, that's given me a gift, which is an appreciation for the importance of reducing any sort of orthopedic injuries and how much your life changes when you are in a constant state of pain and immobility. You
1: know, one of the things I, I find so interesting about your journey is that all of us are kind of armchair scientists to some degree. I mean, it's it's part of our job as humans, right? Like we, we take the information available to us in the world and we use it to navigate as well as we can to figure out how to be healthy and happy and thrive. And and we're all dealing with this sort of limitation of our own experience, the historical moment we're born into, what what knowledge and resources are available to us. But we're all sort of scientific experiments of one to some degree, but it, it's it, it's exciting and suspenseful. And it seems to me that you, to some degree, have been on this personal journey of, of trying to figure out how to optimize your own health and how to flourish as a human. And you've shared that journey along the way uh, and, and you've approached it with an unusual degree of kind of rigor and intensity, right? It seems like it's almost been an organic process of people kind of watching your process of figuring out what works for you, learning about how we can improve medicine in general, and how other people at scale can benefit from that. Does that
2: Has that felt like an organic process? Yeah, very much so. It, it certainly started out as, um, you know, just trying to fix the first patient. So that would have been me. And then about, you know, roughly 10 years ago, starting to figure out how to apply that to other patients. And our our practice is very small and that allows it to feel a bit like a laboratory where everything is bespoke. Everything is, we we just have a luxury that I don't think we would have if we were practicing this in a traditional way. And um, obviously that's one of the limitations that I think many doctors have, because it's not like we're doing something other doctors don't want to be doing. I've never met a doctor who isn't doing primary care, who isn't on the front lines, who doesn't say, God, like I really wish... We could bring these actual tools to prevention but you know that the system they're in isn't, isn't really permitting it so we feel fortunate that we can do that and i think as an obligation we have to be able to share that information with everybody else so that you're you know you're not just getting this information if you're peter's patient and that's why there's a podcast there's a book there's a newsletter but but i do think we have this obligation to share this so that everybody can kind of figure this stuff out on their own and and other doctors can learn what we're doing i mean we're not we're not you know we're not trying to uh be Coca-Cola here with a little secret uh, recipe. We want everybody to know how to do this.
1: So you you referred earlier to medicine 2.0 versus 3.0 and I think that's your term, right? I mean that's a term that you've come up with and I think it reflects I mean it, you described, you know, 20 years ago as a young resident at John Hopkins, you felt frustrations with the medical establishment. It sounds like some of those frustrations have persisted and you have a pretty clear vision of how our medical system is failing us and and how we can make medicine better. Do you want to
2: speak to that? Yeah. And and I do think it's always helpful to start with the good, right? So medicine 1.0 is basically not medicine, but it was the thing that filled the void of medicine uh, until medicine 2.0 came along, which I'll, I'll explain. But you alluded to something earlier, which is we're all armchair scientists. And I think that medicine 1.0 is what that looks like without the scientific method. So we have always constructed stories. That's why 500 years ago, we thought that there were gods that determined everything, where the planets were, why you got sick. You know, bad odors. There was no scientific method. There was no understanding of science. You can't use a tool that has yet to be invented. And therefore, medicine 1.0 was largely witchcraft. By the way, sometimes that witchcraft worked. You know, it's not like a blind squirrel can't find nuts sometimes, but it didn't work because the thinking was right. It just, you know, you happened to stumble onto things that were. Um, via alchemy, that that sort of tend to work. Okay, so
1: and and there, and there was I'm sorry to interrupt, but there there was a there was a date before which you probably didn't want to enter a hospital, right? I mean, it would be a net negative. Oh, for sure. And yeah. a, and some people have put that around early 1900s. I mean, randomized controlled testing, you know, well, started yeah, cer- to make it effective. You know,
2: certainly in the in the mid to late 19th century, it was problematic, right? So you know, if you think about you know prior to Uh, antiseptic technique prior to even local anesthetic uh, and things like that. I mean, a hospital was a really scary place to be. But that transition where we went from the dark ages to where we ended up in the early 20th century, which is really when medicine 2.0 came into its own, was a remarkable transformation, largely on the basis of three things. Um, One being first and foremost, the elucidation of the scientific method, You know, a la Francis Bacon, in the uh, 17th century. And then of course, you had germ theory aided in large part by the development of the light microscope. And then you had the development of antibiotics. And those three things clearly not overnight, changed the face of medicine altogether. And what they did was result in a doubling of life expectancy, a literal doubling in life expectancy between 1900 and the year 2000. But if you look at the data closely, you'll realize that that doubling in life expectancy came almost entirely through the reduction of what I describe as fast death. So, you know, prior to that era and up into the early 20th century, we effectively died quickly, meaning you were doing okay and then you weren't. And it was usually infections and trauma that were the cause of death. Medicine 2.0 came along and effectively solved that problem you never make it go away, but just made it such that it you weren't constantly at the threat of death. And in the process, we started to die slowly. Chronic diseases started to dominate yeah, the landscape. Yeah. And so I don't know that I like to think of medicine 2.0 as a failure. I just think medicine 2.0 was designed and built around solving fast death. But yeah. the playbook doesn't work for slow death. and you don't need me to tell you that. I mean, that's like obvious if you spend 10 minutes looking at the data. The approach of Medicine 2.0, which is intervening once the problem has started, doesn't really work when it comes to cancer, heart disease, neurodegenerative disease, diabetes. Furthermore, the tools of Medicine 2.0, which are largely procedural and pharmacologic, are also relatively limited when applied very late. In some cases, they're better than others. I I don't want to, again, I don't want to diminish this. I mean, a a person who has a heart attack today is way better off than a person who had a heart attack 50 years ago. I mean, no comparison. Um, You know, 50 years ago, if you had a heart attack, they were giving you aspirin, morphine, and oxygen. Today, they give you clot-blusting drugs, they can stick a stent in, you're going to be on lipid-lowering therapy, which of course you should have been on 40 years earlier, but you've yeah. got way better odds. We've got AEDs, we've got advanced cardiac life support, all sorts of things. But, you know, it's it's clear that this playbook is only going to produce incremental gains going forward. And therefore we we really need a new approach, and that's what I'm calling medicine
1: 3.0. And if we want evidence that that the current system is failing us. I was astonished to learn that nearly, I think you say half of Americans are diabetic or pre-diabetic.
2: It depends on the estimates. Um, Those are estimates that are out there. I would say the most conservative estimate would be a third. Yeah. So call it somewhere between a third and a half.
1: So you've identified four diseases, four primary diseases that that are killing us that we are not addressing as well as we could. And you call those the four horsemen.
2: Right. And all of these are diseases of modernity. So these are diseases that didn't really exist in appreciable quantities a hundred years ago. Three of these diseases are what I call big death certificate tickets, meaning they're actually the ones that show up on the death certificates the most. And those are all of the diseases of atherosclerosis, which is heart disease and cerebrovascular disease. So heart attacks and strokes. That's number one by a country mile cancer, and then the entire suite of neurodegenerative diseases and dementing diseases. So that's everything from Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease, Lewy body dementia, et cetera, vascular dementia, all these things. So those three things account for the majority of death certificates. And, and that's most. I mean, if, if you include the entire population of smokers, you have to include COPD in there. I largely exclude that from this analysis because most people who are interested in living longer aren't smoking. So you could argue there's a fifth horseman in COPD, but uh, for the purpose of the way I'm thinking about it, it doesn't make sense. The fourth horseman is not really a big death certificate ringer. You're not gonna see him on a lot of death certificates. In fact, if you you wanna do the death certificate analysis, he doesn't rank in the top five. And that's type two diabetes, but I expand that to include the entire spectrum of metabolic disease that is prelude to that. And that begins with hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, all the way out to type two diabetes. And while that spectrum of diseases, again, doesn't register at the same level as the other three horsemen, what's very important to understand is that it's the force multiplier of them all. So it's increasing your odds of each of the other three horsemen by anywhere from 50 to 100%. And so it is the insidious thing that must be controlled you have to be metabolically healthy that is step 1 of this process right if you if you want to take aim at the other three horsemen you must address metabolic health your metabolic house as i say must be in order and then we can begin targeting the other three in specific disease prevention strategies
1: and most of us think of these these diseases as 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 something we should worry about once our doctor says, "Hey, you have a problem here," and the case you make is that the thresholds we have for when we treat these diseases are somewhat arbitrary, right? I, I think I think you say that once your risk of cardiovascular disease reaches five percent for the next ten years, you are considered a treatment priority in the current system. But if it's four percent, even though there's a very clear pathway to 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 to, to future problems it's, it's you know, you you go to your annual checkup and they say, okay, you're fine, <laughs> right? Which which happens to me. I find it very frustrating. I say, can you please give me more nuance? You know, I'm fine. What does that mean? Right?
2: Yeah. So, the the threshold you're referring to is what's called major adverse cardiac events. So, as you said, if your calculated risk for a major adverse cardiac event, so heart attack, stroke, or death in the next decade is below 5%, yeah, primary prevention is not necessary is not is deemed not necessary primary prevention means intervention to prevent your first heart attack stroke or <laughs> brush with death and it reminds me a lot of kind of the mortgage crisis in 2008 at the time I was at McKinsey and even though as you mentioned I was recruited there to do healthcare I ended up doing credit risk so I spent my time in banks and I write about this a little bit in the book because it also really, really shaped so much of my thinking. So in that sense, while it looks like a completely random and arbitrary detour out of medicine, being in the world of credit risk during what will go down in my lifetime as the greatest implosion of credit risk uh, was, was very formative. Having formal training in risk management really shaped my thinking in many ways. And one of the most sobering lessons was that all models are wrong, some are useful. So in the credit models, when we first got in to look at, you know, the underbelly of these companies, and we were brought in on totally separate issues. We didn't come in because they thought mortgages were a problem. We came in to help them with compliance on something else called the Basel II Accord, which was this completely dreary, sleepy, thing being levied on banks in 2006 that they couldn't care less for, but they just wanted to have you know, consultants figure it out for them. In playing with the models that they had built, we realized a peculiar finding, which was the models couldn't anticipate or make any prediction if home prices didn't go up. In other words, every single one of these banks' models assumed home prices would monotonically rise indefinitely. And to even try to put in a negative number for home price growth, what if home prices go down 5% in the next year, the model couldn't spit out a number. You know how that story ended. Yeah. On the cardiovascular side, these models can't input ages below 40. So if you took a 39-year-old with a train wreck of a situation, horrible family history, you know, lipids out the wazoo, high blood pressure, put all the risk factors you want on them, the models won't even be able to give you a 10 year risk. Because the truth of it is, even a 39 year old train wreck is at very low risk for a 10 year event. Now, the problem with these models is they ignore causality. In other words, when you practice medicine 3.0, you have to target causal risk factors, regardless of short-term risk. This is a very important distinction that is tragically missing from medicine 2.0. And we do it in some ways. So I'll give you an example of where medicine 2.0 does a very good job of this, but we're, we're awful in most ways. So here, here's the only place, in my opinion, where medicine 2.0... Not the only place, but this is the best example of medicine 2.0, treating the causal factor of risk. Nobody disputes that smoking is causally related to lung cancer. Yeah, We don't build dumb models that we show smokers to say, when your 10 year risk of lung cancer hits 5%, we're going to tell you to stop smoking. Of course not. We know that smoking is causally related, which by the way, doesn't mean every smoker gets lung cancer. They don't. And doesn't mean that everyone who gets lung cancer is a smoker. Causality is not a one-to-one mapping, but smoking is undoubtedly causally related. We tell people not to ever smoke. And the day somebody starts smoking, we try to get them to stop. That's a medicine 3.0 approach towards lung cancer vis-a-vis smoking we need to be doing that for every chronic disease and every modifiable risk factor and sadly we don't so you know that's that's kind of my long spiel on one of the big distinctions between 2.0 and
1: 3.0 how significant are the kind of the bad habits we can get into we know that habit formation is an issue but there's also the damage we potentially do to our bodies in our starting as you potentially as early as our teenage years into our twenties and thirties and forties. Um, I had in college, I had a friend whose father was a physician and his advice to his son was, you know what kid go out, have a great time, party, smoke, drink, do whatever you want. Then when you turn 40, clean up your act, become a health nut because most of these conditions are reversible. I guess you would disagree with that advice.
2: I would. Yeah. Um, on, on several reasons, right? So one, you're doing a lot of damage to yourself when you're 20 and 30. That's, you know, the analogy to me there would be telling somebody when they graduate from college and get their first job at 22, don't save a penny, don't plan for retirement, accumulate as much debt as you can. And then when you're 40, start thinking about things responsibly. There's a grain of truth to this. You should enjoy yourself when you're young and you can. I mean, I fully, you know, buy this idea. I don't know if you've read Bill Perkins' book, Die with Zero. Uh, it's a fantastic book. Um, mm-hmm. I've had Bill on the podcast, and you know, in it, Bill talks about the importance of spending money while you can spend money. But that's not incongruent with also being responsible and planning for you know the future. So on, on the one level, I just sort of reject that, and and then the other level is to your point, like it's really hard to break horrible habits. The third reason I reject that advice is I reject the advice that being healthy and making healthy choices is only beneficial for the future. In fact, this is where the analogy with savings is actually not a good analogy. Because there's no question that when you're saving money today, it's a net negative today. You don't get anything out of not spending that $200 a week that you're putting into your 401k. So it's 100% downside today, and you're just sort of trying to arbitrage the hyperbolic discounting function that tells you it's gonna be worth even more tomorrow. But with health, it's actually beneficial tomorrow and today. You're gonna feel better when you're 30 if you're eating reasonably, not drinking excessively, and you're fit. So even if by some miracle at 40, you could turn that ship around, and I would argue it's very difficult to do so, and you're not going to erase all the damage. You've also spent two decades not feeling as good as you could feel. So again, you don't have to be a monk. That's certainly not what I'm suggesting. I'm not suggesting that, you know, we'd be little robots who are purely optimized around health and no optimization around joy or pleasure. But obviously I think that the advice is extreme. Coming up after the break, Peter explains why
1: the best way to get healthy now is to think about what you'd like to be able to do when you're old and work backwards. We'll be right back.
0: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days.
2: We had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One.
1: You have this um, this really interesting kind of counterintuitive framing around thinking about our health, working our way backwards. Asking the question, in your last decade of life, what do you want to be able to do? All right, right. And you call this the the centenarian decathlon. And work your way backwards to, based on what you want to do in your 90s, or if you're so fortunate to live that long, you're going to have to start making investments now in that 401k, as you say. You're going to have to change your behaviors now to be able to lift your bag Would Put it in the the slot in front of you in the airplane, pick up your great grandkids, carry
2: groceries. Do you want to share that logic? I think a lot through this lens of what's called the marginal decade. So it's one of the first questions I will ask a new patient is, what are your goals for the last decade of your life? And what are your goals for the next 12 months? That's how we frame our time together. And how do we make those congruent? So almost without exception, nobody's goals line up. (laughs) So I don't know if you've ever done archery, but in archery with a compound bow, you have like a peep, which is the thing that's right in front of your eye. It's in the string when you draw back. And then you have a sight at the end of the bow, and you have to line those two up perfectly. If there's even the smallest eclipse, your arrow is going to deviate wildly. So you have to have what's called front sight, rear sight acquisition perfectly before you release the arrow. And that's how I sort of think of it. That's your one-year goal. That's your marginal decade goal. They have to line up. Mm. Now, most people have far too lofty a set of goals in their marginal decade for what they're doing today. So you ask people, and we, we, we do this quite formally eventually, we, not, not, not in the first meeting, but eventually we do this quite formally where we actually have a list of 50 things. And we say, pick the 10 that are most important to you. And they're activities of daily living. They can be you know, very particular things to an individual. You know, Lots of people who ski want to be able to ski when they're in the last decade of their life. And we're not here to tell them that that's an unreasonable goal. We're simply here to tell them what is the physiologic requirement to be able to do that. And then we know what the rate of decline is of these metrics. So we know how much strength declines by decade. We know how much power declines by decade. We know how much VO2 max declines by decade. So we say, well, these are the physiologic requirements for where you want to be at 90 based on how they're declining, this is where you need to be today, where are you? Oh, you're here. (laughs) So you're higher than where you need to be at 90, but you're not nearly high enough. So it's sort of like saying, I'm in a glider and I wanna get over here and I'm only here. And it's like, no, 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 your glider's not gonna make it. But the sooner you find that out, the more time you have to get that glider back up. And and that's, that's effectively what the exercise is all about.
1: I love this notion of of aging as a glide path. I hadn't hadn't thought of it that way. And and you have this list of like, you know, do you want to be able to hike 1.5 miles on a hilly trail? Would you like to be able to have sex? Would you like to be able to open a jar? <laughs> right. And I think you say that most all of your patients say, actually, I'd like to be able to do all of those things. But as you say, given the glide path of what we know, we can be pretty darn confident that that our capabilities will erode at a certain clip. It's very eye-opening. And I I wonder whether it's interesting because it's a perspective that I had that had never occurred to me. And I wonder if that year you spent on your back or or a portion of it on your back being unable to do the most basic things was part of what enabled you to think about what it's like, what it feels like to be 95, you know? Um, I mean, this sense that we have to fight for these, this kind of basic mobility.
2: Yeah, it absolutely was. Um, I have a really good friend, Rick Elias, who has also been on my podcast. Rick was one of the people who was on that US uh, air flight that Captain Sullenberger landed in the Hudson in 2009 and um rick has given i th- one of the most powerful moving ted talks you'll ever hear it's very short it's about 7 minutes long where he talks about that experience i would recommend everybody stop listening to this podcast right now go listen to that 7 minute ted talk and then you can come back and in it he talks about what a gift it was because it was a, it was inevitable that they were going to die there's nobody on that plane who thought wow. we're coming out of yeah. this one it was yeah. you know it was 90 seconds of wow this is it this is over and Rick talks about that in a way that's really remarkable. But what's also amazing to me is how he says, this has been the greatest gift I've ever received.
0: I was given the gift of a miracle of not dying that day. I was given another gift, which was to be able to see into the future and come back and live differently
2: when you get someone to take you to the end of your life so you get to live you get to see what what exactly goes through your mind as you're dying and then they snap your fingers and you're back and you get to do it all over again what a gift and so on a much smaller scale i think that's exactly what i experienced at the age of 27 which was 3 months of not being able to walk so just being you know just laying on a floor for 3 months my mom had to come down and literally feed me you know, for a year being incapacitated with pain. And that's a long enough period of time that you don't forget it. Uh, I've said this before, but my kids get a kick out of the fact that if we pull into a strip mall, like I'm going to park as far away as possible just to celebrate that I love that I can walk in. I don't care if it's raining. I don't care how hot it is. I don't care how many other parking spots are closer. Let's walk because it's awesome to be able to walk, which I couldn't. Right. You know, so, um, T- total gift. And I don't know that I would want everybody to experience what I went through, but maybe if they can take my word for it. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 exactly. The death, deathbed perspective. If the Lord wants to make a man happy, he takes away his donkey and then gives it back to him. <laughs> I always like mm-hmm. that. Okay. So we know that we have, you know, a few levers that we can pull to, you know, to, to achieve our health objectives, right? we know that the big three are diet sleep and exercise mental health is also really important and we'll talk about that but among the physical things we can do if you had to force rank those three levers you know diet sleep and exercise what what do you think are the ones that are most effective in improving the health span of most people listening how how would you rank those three
2: It's no question that exercise is number one. Um, There should be no debate on that. I'm actually surprised there is. There is, by the way, but that's just because I think most people aren't familiar with the data. Um, And I also think nutrition is so tribal and religious that people tend Mm. to get very personally attached to nutrition. And so um, there's just a lot of weirdness there. But um, there, there is no debate that exercises the heavyweight champion of uh all things that pertain to a longer better life and, and I'll explain why in a moment. As far as nutrition and sleep, I would generally put nutrition second, sleep third, but there's a caveat here which is if your sleep is really really bad, it could catapult to number 1 in the short run. And I would also say that there are examples I've seen and I know people. I mean, I have I have a I have a a person who who's in my life whose sleep is so bad that it actually undoes any benefit on the nutrition and exercise uh, in her life and she understands that we actually spoke earlier this week, and I'm like, you know four hours a night of sleep is just not sufficient, and yeah. it is tearing you apart and and here's all the evidence why right um but as a general rule, I would go exercise, nutrition, sleep, but the gap between exercise and the other two is a chasm. Um, and here, here, here's, here's the data, right? So the easiest way to imagine this is to ask the question, what are the gradations of improvement or harm that come in the extreme states of each? So let's yeah. start with nutrition what is nutrition all about? Nutrition is all about metabolic health. So, what is the most extreme state of poor nutrition? It's type 2 diabetes and obesity. So, how much of a risk does that bring to an individual? And if you look at all the Cox proportional hazards, which are the statistical tools that we use to generate what are called hazard ratios, it's clear that the risk of type 2 diabetes is significant. We talked about it earlier. If you talk about all-cause mortality, it's about 30 to 50% more. And if you talk about disease-specific mortality, it can be 50 to 100% more. But let's just talk about all-cause mortality, because that's the number that matters most. This is death from anything. This includes infections, you name it. And let's say 1.4 to 1.5 is the hazard ratio to me, that speaks to just how important nutrition is. Nutrition is a very important tool for maintaining energy balance and metabolic health. And when that's out of whack, that's how much of a hit you take. Okay. When you look at sleep deprivation or disrupted sleep, it's, it, it has smaller hazard ratios than that you know you're in the sort of 1.2 range to 1.3 range so short sleep is going to come with a 20 to 30% increase in all cause mortality by the way long sleep does too probably yeah. because long sleep reflects fragmented sleep but it may also underpin diseases it, there may be some some bias within that system because you may be sleeping long because of underlying disease but now let's look at exercise in exercise, we have three really good metrics that integrate the work that is done. Um, and those are VO2 max, muscle mass, and strength. And I use the term integrator, which is probably foreign to people because we're not used to thinking about you know, calculus when we think about health. But for anybody who's taking calculus and they'll remember what an integral function is, an integral function is a function that that adds up the area under the curve. And so in physical systems, we think of this as the work that has been done. And (laughs) your glucose level, if 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 you woke up tomorrow and I checked your glucose level, that's not a great integrator of what's been happening over the past few months or years. A hemoglobin A1C is a little bit better, right? A hemoglobin A1C integrates or tells me Roughly speaking over the past three months, what has your blood glucose looked like? But the actual blood glucose doesn't really tell me all that much. You you could have had perfect blood glucose, but then the night before you just ate like crazy uh, and, and it's not going to look that great. But VO2 max, like there's nothing you could have done in the last day or week that is going to significantly, if, you're, if your number is high, it's not high because of what you did over a day or a week or a month. It's high because of an enormous volume of training you've done. Similarly, if it's low, it's not because you had a bad night last night. It's, it's low because you are deconditioned. The same is true for muscle mass and the same is true for strength. These are huge integrators of work. And the differences between people who are high and low in those metrics dwarfs anything you see for nutrition and sleep. So if you have a very high VO2 max versus a very low VO2 max, so by let's just say if you compare people in the bottom 25% for their age and sex to the top 2.5%, the difference is 5x, which is a 400% difference in all-cause mortality. Astonishing. If you talk about bottom quartile strength to top quartile strength, it's a hazard ratio of almost 3 that's nearly 200% difference. The same is true for muscle mass. So what would I take away from that? If your VO2 max, muscle mass and strength are in the top 10% for your age and sex, you're bulletproof in terms of like your nutrition doesn't really matter that much. Now again, there's a caveat here because you wouldn't be able to get into that shape without reasonable nutrition and sleep to support it. So, yeah. you know, there is an absolute cross-pollination of these things, but sure, but this type of analysis is what makes it so abundantly clear why, you know, does my 17 chapter book have 3 chapters more than anything else devoted to exercise. There's nothing there's no other topic that garners so much discussion uh, and instruction. Uh, because it it is the most important tool that we have, and that is obviously inclusive of all pharmacologic agents.
1: I mean, the, the magnitude of this difference is is kind of astonishing, and I was unaware of this before reading your book. That I, I, I believe that that smoking creates uh, something like a forty percent increase in the probability of
2: dying from that's right. From smoking smoking is bad. Right? Well, no, no. So smoking's increases your risk of dying from lung cancer by yeah. know, 900%. Okay. However, okay. your the impact all of smokingality all cause mortality is 40 to 50%.
1: 40 to 50%. So if it's 40% whereas the difference between as you just said I think top 2.5% VO2 max versus bottom quartile is 400%. So so so, so literally like if you take somebody who's sedentary and say, okay, you can continue to be sedentary, not get much exercise, or we can train you to get at the top of your VO two, two max potential, and take up smoking, versus not smoke and continue to be sedentary. You'd be better off smoking, smoking it's a pack a day without doing I mean, the experiment. Yeah. But
2: yes, the numbers would suggest that. And by the way, a lot of people will hear us say this and say. Come on, you guys are clowns. Like, who's going to get into the top 2.5%? To yeah, which I would say, true. well, first of all, I do believe most people can, and I've seen it because we do it with our patients. But let's put that aside. Okay. It doesn't need to yeah. be that great. Let's go from being in the bottom 25th percentile into the third quartile. So let's just divide the population into bottom 25th, you know, 25th to 50, 50 to 75, 75 to 100. Like, that's if you go from the very bottom to just the third one there's not a human being on this planet who is incapable of doing that with a little bit yeah. more training. That reduction in risk, that, that difference in risk, is, that's a hazard ratio of about 2.75. That's 175% difference in all-cause mortality in any given year. So you don't have to be talking about the most extreme difference.
1: Yeah. It's it's it, I mean the gap in perception here is is so enormous. I think if I were to survey my friends, I think most of them would would think that nutrition was more important than exercise.
2: Absolutely. I think it's what most people I think most people believe that that that's why I just sort of uh, I I have a friend and we joke a lot about this on Twitter which is there should be I wish, you know, there was a way that Twitter wouldn't let you tweet anything nutrition related until you do 10 pushups. Like you just <laughs> you, know, you gotta go out and run half a mile, then you can come yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and pontificate about your nutrition. If you didn't if you didn't work out today for an hour, no nutrition tweeting.
1: Yeah, I think I think a push-up requirement for tweeting just in, in general, general might probably be a good great. For it. yeah. yeah, it's probably a good idea. <laughs> but I think you said that that you yourself ten years ago did not understand. How much more powerful exercise was for our health, and, and and at the time you you saw diet as maybe the biggest driver.
2: Uh, absolutely, yep. I I was I was uh, privy to this fallacy as well up until uh, God probably about six years ago, I would say.
1: And this is really, I think, great news, and should hopefully listeners receive this. I mean, I mean, maybe the first response is, "Oh no, I've got to get off my ass <laughs> and get to the gym," uh, which is true. But the good news is, we just had Kelly McGonigal on the show, who you know gave a great TED talk about. Uh, she's a social psychologist. wrote a book called The Joy of Movement. Mm. That you know, we have this beautiful cocktail of neurochemicals that reward us for moving our bodies, right? We, we we get this release of endorphins and endocannabinoids and myokines, which scientists call hope molecules. We feel more optimistic. We connect better with other humans. We have better brain function. So, as you say, I mean, we get. We get these incredible kind of short-term dividends from exercise as well as sleep for that matter and nutrition. Um, and and then these in- incredibly profound long-term health benefits. So it's really kind of a no-brainer. And I thought up until reading your book, Peter, that I that I was like had a great fitness program. And now I know I've got to double down. It's not. It's not enough. We'll, we'll, we'll get to some of those details.
2: Everything you said is completely accurate, and, and I agree with with exactly that point. And and I think I describe it at some point in the book as exercise is the single most important drug we have.
1: Yeah. Right. And if it were if it were a pill, imagine how valuable it would be.
2: Well, it's funny. Everybody wants to come up with the exercise pill, and I get pitched on it about every week. Right. So there's always some biotech company that, you know, or some lab that says they've discovered this is the one molecule that's conferring all the benefits of exercise. And we've got this mouse model that demonstrates if you just infuse them with this molecule, you know, you're going to get benefit. But But the truth of it is that's never going to pan out. And the reason is there's too many things going on. That's what makes exercise so remarkable is it is hitting so many different systems that it can't be put into a pill. So as an intervention, it has no peer. That's the good news. The bad news is you do have to do a little bit of good work. The next piece of good news is, to your point, you get all these incredible benefits in real time and they just keep paying dividends in the in the long run.
1: So is it counteracting each of the four horsemen? I mean, I think yes. it does impact, doesn't it? Glucose disposal, Absolutely. insulin sensitivity,
2: yeah. growth factors for neurons. It's the single biggest needle mover on neurodegenerative disease. It's the single biggest needle mover on metabolic disease. Cancer is less clear. There's no doubt that it reduces the risk of cancer if for no other reason through its impact on metabolic disease. And poor metabolic health is the second biggest driver of cancer after smoking. And on cardiovascular disease, it's hard to say, it's hard to force rank it because cardiovascular disease has so much genetics involved. And that just necessitates the use of pharmacotherapy. So it really depends on the individual. Um, in other words, you know, you can you can be the fittest person in the world, but if your LP little A is through the roof, or you have familial hypercholesterolemia, you're going to need lots of drugs to address that problem. So I wouldn't be able to say in that person's case exercise is the most important thing. I would say you know pharma is, but clearly for two of the four, exercise is. Hands down, the most important. And for the other two, it is important, but the relative weighting is going to depend on the individual.
1: When we come back, Peter critiques my fitness regime and shares his training tips, tricks, and secrets. You know, I think it could be useful to take a step back and tell you a little bit more about why we do what we do at the Next Big Idea Club. We do it because our lives have been transformed by books. Fresh ideas from the world's great thinkers we find both fascinating and useful. And yet we know that books can be really long and we have limited time. We know that you're busy. There is a universe of brilliant ideas stuck in books trying to get out trying to get into your ears. So we created the Next Big Idea app, which delivers the key insights from the best new books directly into your ears in only 12 minutes from the authors themselves. This part is important. Other book summary apps summarize books without permission from the authors who deliver the heart and soul of these books. We wanna give you the authentic article and we wanna help authors succeed. We want their ideas to be discovered. And we hope that after downloading our app, you will also buy their books. Every time someone downloads our app and every time someone subscribes and joins our community, it puts a bounce in the step of all of the nine amazing members of the Next Big Idea Club team, guaranteed. You subscribe and you will put a bounce in our step, maybe two. Please join us. Just search for Next Big Idea wherever you get your apps. There is no better way to get smart fast And no better way to put a bounce in our steps. Download the Next Big Idea app right now. Okay, and so getting into the nuts and bolts, what do we need to do to get these extraordinary benefits? What what do you recommend for your typical individual in a given week?
2: So I usually start with the question of how much time are you willing to give? To this process. You know, people always say, Well, Peter, what do you do? And it's like, that it's not, that's not relevant what I do, right? Tell me what you're willing to do, and we will, we will work with that. And, and by the way, the math is pretty much the same for everybody. It's take whatever that number is, divide it in half. Half of that is going to be strength and stability, half of that is going to be cardio. The strength stability should be divided such that about 80% of it is strength, 20% of it is stability. The cardio should be divided such that about 80% of it is zone two and 20% of it is VO2 max specific training. That in a nutshell is the simplest formula for how to divide your time in exercise. And is that going to get you the fastest marathon time? No. Is that going to help you win the local time trial series if you're a cyclist? No, not at all, right? Like, so I'm not for a second suggesting that this is the most sports specific way to train. I'm telling you, this is the best way to train if you're trying to become a centenarian decathlete.
1: And, and so to, to put a finer point on it, let's say I'm 55. And let's say in my 90s, knock on wood, I'd like to be able to do everything on the list. Including dance at the jazz festival in New Orleans, and ski, and play squash. I have historically been more focused on cardio. One of one of the big learnings for me reading your book is how important strength training is. But I'll, I'll very briefly give you my current workout regime because I've been optimizing Peter for time efficiency as a busy mm-hmm. as a busy person. So and that, and that's totally fine. Yeah, yeah. So uh, so my typical four days a week, I go out. I used to run two or three miles, but I've gotten it down to. Uh, I've added sprints, and so I, I run about two miles with six all-out 45-second sprints. It used to be I'd like to get that higher. I've been gradually increasing the length of time of the sprints, but that takes 15 minutes, you know, to run two miles with with six all-out sprints. And and so that's four days a week, two days a week I play squash for an hour, which is more intensive cardio, I think, uh, more sustained. Um, on the weekends, I'll do. Um, like a, a three to four mile longer run, uh, and then I do like twice a week. I do minimal strength training, basically curls, curls and benches. Um, I I know I need to do more now,
2: so that's a start. What 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 do you say? So how how many hours does that add up to? And like on those two on those two mile sprint days, are you doing a warm up, cool down? That's or like how are you preparing yourself for for those all out efforts?
1: I'm really not actually. After each sprint,
2: I walk it off for thirty seconds. Okay. But
1: I, I I tend to I don't do a whole lot of warm up and cool off. I I haven't I've never been a big stretcher, although I realize maybe I need to modify that plan. But I think it I think it adds up to all in three hours and change okay. a week of exercise, roughly.
2: Okay. And are you willing to do any more?
1: I'm totally willing to do more. I I, I want to. I want to have sex in my 90s.
2: Okay. So let's just throw a number out there and say six hours a week, total exercise. Wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. Wow. So how would I think about that in you? Um, well, again, this is very generic. This would be all modifiable based on knowing your metrics. So once I saw your VO2 max, saw your zone two output, I'm going to assume you'd fail our strength test miserably and that's because most people do even people who come at it with a strength training background so there's not you know I'm not saying that to be critical um but it's not because
1: you can see me on video that's not <laughs> no no, no not at all it's just that
2: <laughs> like the test is very very hard and the standards yeah. are very very high because we're doing we're we're building the test we our metrics are set such that everybody could do everything at 90 that's the standard we're going to hold you to and that's why virtually everybody fails at 40 so I would say that means you're going to be doing strength training for three hours a week and we would focus on some movement preparation. So we would first do a movement assessment. That movement assessment would probably demonstrate some very classic patterns, I would suspect. So I suspect you're very tight in the hamstrings. You I would have to look at your breathing patterns and stuff like that. But you're, you know, and I as you recall, I write about this in the book, right? There are these sort of three different archetypes of breathing patterns. And those breathing patterns largely dictate your movement strategies. All of those movement strategies are counterproductive and they need to be corrected. Um, so you'd spend 20% of that three hours on exercises to correct the movement patterns and the remaining 80% of time strength training. Because you don't have a huge background in strength training, we're not going to get too fancy. It would probably be three whole body workouts a week. You know, we're not going to do an upper lower split. We're also not going to, you know, we're going to start you doing a lot of single leg exercises. This is very important for runners. So, you know, running is, in, is a single leg activity, right? You're, each leg is doing it, is, is, is impacting forceful on its own and receiving force on its own. So you're not, you know, a squat and a deadlift are kind of not natural exercises in that sense to a runner. So you're going to be learning a lot of new exercises, mostly variations of split squats, uh, single leg RDLs, things like that. So these are much safer exercises as well for somebody who doesn't come into this with a huge background of strength training. On the cardio side, what are we going to do? Well, the good news is you've already got an awesome base there. I think what we're going to do is widen the base of your pyramid, because right now, just on what you described, you got a little too much peak intensity, not enough base building. So of that three hours, I actually want 80% of that to be at zone two, which is an intensity at which you can run and still carry out a conversation. And given your level of fitness, that's still gonna be probably a decent clip. You know, you're probably, it's, I'm guessing, but that might be like, you know, eight minute miles for you or something like that. You know, it's not, no. it's, it's, it has to be brisk enough that there's a training effect. So if you can talk easily, that's actually too low in intensity. If you can't talk at all, which obviously you can't during a lot of your higher intensity stuff, then that's too much. So 80% of those miles are gonna be run right at that zone two level. And then the other 20%, I'm actually going to take you back to intervals, but they're going to be longer intervals. So we're going to really optimize around zone, uh, pardon me, around VO2 max. And so what I'd probably have you do, depending on how fast you are, um, is do three minute intervals. So I'd have you go as hard as you can for three minutes, walk for three minutes, as hard as you can for three minutes, walk for three minutes. And we'll push that up to four. Uh, And you only do that once a week. And that, that's going to be the toughest workout you do a week, both in the weight room or, or on the track. That one workout, we would optimize the other workouts around that one being your highest performance workout a week. We would structure your rest around that. We would structure everything around you being able to give it your all uh, and leave it on the table for that one workout.
1: And so I'm guessing the reason that you had that you uh, that your answer to the question what's the optimal workout is sort of uh, about the the time that a typical person listening to this can allocate is probably because there's some there are many people who would think six hour six hours of working out a week that's a (laughs) non-starter right and and we know that there's the opportunity for a virtuous cycle here partly because of what we described about these the great the great joy of how good you feel when you when you exercise. So really what we want to do is get people on a kind of virtuous cycle of exercising more and more and more. And would you say that it sounds like you probably work out even more than what you just described, more than six hours a week. I mean, would you say that the average person should be getting on a pathway to incrementally increase their both cardio and strength training up until they get to a, a kind of a total of six hours or, or more?
2: Again, I don't think of it that way. I think, I mean, again, yeah. the data show that there is no upper limit to the benefit that comes from increased fitness, increased muscle mass, increased strength, especially increased cardio fitness. We, we see no upper bound to that limit. This is kind of unusual in biology, right? Interesting. Um, yeah. Most things in biology are use and upside down use. Most of biology is the Goldilocks principle. Uh, cardio fitness is an exception to that rule. It's one of the exceptions. So, um, you know, I think that everything you said before is correct. And when we start with people who don't exercise at all, we just peg them at three hours a week. Because that increment alone provides the biggest improvement that you'll see from any three-hour addition. So going from completely sedentary to three hours a week of exercise will um, reduce your risk of all-cause mortality by 50%. (laughs) So that's a staggering improvement. And if I never get you to take another step beyond those three hours a week, we've still won the game. But you're exactly right. Virtually without exception, those people six months later, nine months later are like, this is freaking awesome. I want to do more of this.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, and you've seen
2: you've seen this in your practice, like with patients over and over again. Yeah, Yeah. I'm getting stronger. My aches and pains are actually going away. Counterintuitive, right? They sort of had this thing, which is, oh, I'm going to kind of coddle myself, my aches and pains. I'm going to I'm going to do less. And the reality of it is, there's nothing that's better for reducing chronic pain than exercising safely. Now, look, everything comes with a nuance here. Can you exercise too much? Absolutely. Can any amount of exercise, if done incorrectly, increase long-term risk? Absolutely. But, you know, again, the luxury I think we have is we, we we have the ability to be nuanced and thoughtful in our approach. So, I mean, it's a broader discussion, of course, but whether six hours is the right number for you or seven hours or eight hours or 10 hours is a function of what else it's competing with. And that doesn't just include other uh, activities, such as, you know, attention to your nutrition or work, but it includes other things that are equally important, such as your relationships and connection to other people. By the way, the one thing yep. I didn't address in your question is where does the racquetball and stuff fit in? I would not include that in the six hours. So the six hours is dedicated to training. Racquetball is is a sport, that's an activity. That's part of why you train is to be able to do that. So I would just say the six hours I would like from you to be the, the training, and then you know, play your sports, your tennis, racquetball, whatever outside of it. And and by the way, you'll be better at those things as well, and your risk of injury will be lower.
1: And 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 how how many hours a week are you exercising?
2: So I'm at kind of a low number by my standards now, um, in part because of the book and just other things that are a huge demand on my time. I'm trying to think. I'm probably at ten hours a week right now. I think for me, the sweet spot's about fourteen. I perform at my best. And, and feel my best at about 14 hours per week. So I'm, I'm kind of undertrained at the moment and, wow. and a, little, yeah. a little bummed out about it. But you also have to keep in mind, like I have a much different training age than most people. I mean, up until my early forties, I was training over 20 hours a week. Uh, and there were periods of my life as a teenager, which is really when I think you lay a lot of the foundation in the muscle. I mean, I was training 36 to 40 hours a week as a teenager, from about the age of 13 to 19.
1: And this was as this was as a young boxer, and then subsequently as a swimmer, uh, setting new records, swimming 32 kilometers.
2: Yeah, and 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 as a cyclist later on. So cyclist, so there's yeah. always been something that has been very high volume training, and I'll never go back to that volume. I don't I don't pine for that at all. And actually, in some ways, what I'm enjoying now is the mental act of being trying to be more flexible in my thinking and acknowledging that there's a season for everything, and right now is not the season for me to be absolutely crushing it in every workout. And um, you know, learning how to how to read my body a little bit more. Yeah. So again, I, I don't I don't think I'm necessarily the, the the person you should be saying, okay, well, whatever Peter does, I'm going to do because that's not necessarily you know. Yeah, necessary. The, the,
1: the and I think there are ways to work the exercise into our lives. I mean, I, I was, you know, I, I walk a fair amount living in New York City and ride bicycles a fair amount. Although the new electric bikes are very tempting, it's a problem for me. <laughs> um, but the but I was very interested in rucking, mm-hmm. which is something that you, which is basically walking or hiking with, with with a weighted backpack up to a third of your body weight. Um, I, I actually purchased the the first step kind of inexpensive rucking system, which is a, a series of sandbags mm. that I could fill uh, before I go to the $350 full rucking system. But I, li- I like the idea that I could go to pick up my kid at school, about a mile and a half, yeah, walk that's, and back. I mean, Three, that's three miles fantastic. round trip, listen to audiobooks, podcasts, which is part of my work, right? I, I mean, there are ways of integrating this into your life that, s- such that it's not a zero-sum game of, of like, you know, Uh, not being able to accomplish the other things you want to do. I think one of the things that to me was most surprising about your exercise um, suggestions is the amount of strength training. If you were to speak to what is most misunderstood about about the benefits of exercise, I think cardio is more broadly appreciated as something that's really good for us. It seems like the strength training might be the piece that is not as widely understood.
2: Yeah, you know, cardio has... All of these amazing metabolic benefits—it's by far the most important tool we have to increase insulin sensitivity. Um, and insulin sensitivity, meaning the ability of the muscles to be receptive to the signal of insulin to bring glucose out of the circulation into the muscle, is a an absolute hallmark of avoiding or delaying death. And cardio training has no peer in that regard. But what strength training does is partially factor into that. You see, strength training increases the capacity of the muscle as a reservoir for glucose. So a bigger muscle, all things equal, is a bigger sink for glucose. So Interesting. So yeah. you, you, you get all these benefits metabolically. You also get many of the same you know, chemical benefits that you're getting, the endocrine benefits, the uh, cognitive benefits um, that you're getting from cardio training. But where strength training is imperative and where it has no peer is on the structural side. And this is with respect to bone density and strength. And those two things decline so much when we age, especially in women. So women are more susceptible to this because of, of hormone loss, that if we were ever gonna add another horseman to the list, it would be accidental death of which falling is the biggest cause of accidental death in the person over 65. So that's a very close competitor for a fifth horseman. Once you're over 65, if you fall and in the course of that fall, break your hip or your femur, there's a 15 to 30% chance you will be dead in 12 months. Worth repeating. It's so staggering. If you're over 65 and you fall and break your hip or femur, there's a 15 to 30% chance, depending on the study, you're not going to be alive in a year. And of the people who are still alive in a year, 50% of them will never regain complete movement. Wow. So even if you're lucky enough to live, you're debilitated for life. You have lost some critical capacity. It's, it's just hard to overstate this. And my kind of glib way that I explain this to patients who are somewhat resistant is, all right, so I don't know what the estimate is for how many billion people have lived, but like it's I think it's like, what, 20 billion people we think have lived in all of human history. Mm-hmm. So I just said, just give me an estimate, just ballpark for me. Of those 20 or 30 billion or whatever the number is, how many of them do you think in the last year of their life said I wish I had less muscle mass. Like, what do you think that number is? I'll tell you what it is: zero. <laughs> zero times is how many times in human history someone in the last year of their life said, "I wish I had less muscle mass." You can't have too much muscle at the end of your life.
1: So interesting. And and and, what do you think about? Uh, I, I mean, I have been under the impression that ultra marathon runners die. Earlier, that there's such a thing as too much cardio, and that when you see crazy jacked bodybuilders, that bodybuilders die a bit earlier. That might be, I, I think those are both to, probably true. Yeah.
2: So, so again, um, you know, the crazy jacked bodybuilder is probably dying not from how much muscle he has, but from what he had to do to get that much muscle. I've, I've actually, you know, sat down with a number of these guys, and it's I'm not being judgmental. I'm just insanely curious about what they need to do to get there. Most people, I think, look at you know, bodybuilders and think, well, they're just kind of freaks and they just take a bunch of drugs. And yeah, they are genetic freaks, and yeah, they take a bunch of drugs, but they're training and eating like you can't believe it. So there's nothing really healthy about anything they're doing. So I don't yeah, I, I always want to make sure people don't use the excuse of the three hundred pound bodybuilder. Dies prematurely, therefore, I shouldn't lift weights. No, no, that's the wrong interpretation. Similarly, you're right. I think, obviously, what is it? Chris McDougall wrote that book, Born to Run, and there's yes. a very famous example of the protagonist of that book who did die um, and probably died from either a cardiomyopathy or, you know, an electrical basically, an electrical failure of the heart due to the heart getting stretched out a little bit. We do see a slightly higher incidence of atrial fibrillation uh and cardiomyopathy in in people who are exercising very very excessively but again i find it a little disconcerting when people who are couch potatoes use those people as the counterexample to why they don't want to do it so i'm more than happy to talk to the patient who's doing 90 miles a week of running and get them to back off uh i'm ha- i'm happy to have that discussion um but, but yeah, it, it shouldn't be used as the excuse to not do it. For, for 99.99999% of people, they don't even have the capacity to push as hard as those two extremes are pushing, and they shouldn't worry about it.
1: I can assure you, Peter, this is not a risk for me. <laughs> There's no ultra marathon or bodybuilding uh, excessive uh, risk for me. I'm a little disappointed that you're not giving me credit for my for my squash and tennis uh, uh workouts in my six hours, but we'll no we'll and, and, and again I, I love you that know. you're
2: doing that because I think that I think that play is important, right? And I think yeah, that, yeah. that that type of stuff is great. The reason I think it's hard for me to put it in your six hours is the, the sweet spot around exercise is when you control the energy system, and the difficulty of doing that in in any sort of sport like squash or tennis is it's very up and very down, right? So your 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 training effect. Is it's, very, it's interval training, it, 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 but it's it, and it's not just interval training. It's inconsistent interval training, where yeah. you're never at a high enough intensity for long enough to get the true VO two max building, and you're never low enough for long enough to get the plateau or the aerobic base building. Um, so, it, it, again, there's nothing wrong with that, but if we're truly trying to optimize your energy systems around long term things we, we want to be able to, to train in a very specific way. So specificity is very important. Um, again, it's not an accident that I've called it the centenarian decathlon. A decathlete is generally regarded as the best athlete overall, but they're not the best at any one thing. So they're a generalist who's yeah. very good at a bunch of things, never the best, but think about the specificity with which that athlete has to train to, to accomplish that feat. And so so it it really is kind of a you know i used to refer to it as the centenarian olympics when i first started talking about this five six years ago but i realized that the centenarian decathlon is a much better mental model all right that's our show
1: peter atia is the author of the number one new york times bestseller outlive The Science and Art of Longevity, and he'll be back next Thursday to talk with me about why most diet advice is bad, how to perfect the art of a good night's sleep, and why you should think about your mental health as part and parcel of your overall health. If you found this episode useful, you may wanna share it with your friends and family. I am sharing this one with quite a few people because I would like all of us to be around and healthy as long as possible. As always, we'd be thrilled if you'd leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. It really helps us get the word out. We'd also love it if you would download the Next Big Idea app. We've loaded that baby up with thousands of audiobook summaries written and read by the authors themselves, exclusive video and audio e-courses from folks like Daniel Pink and Susan Cain, ad-free versions of this podcast, and our other show, The Next Big Idea Daily and lots of other mind-enhancing, mood-boosting, knowledge-expanding content. Search for Next Big Idea in your app store right now. And if you're listening to this and still haven't gotten your dad a Father's Day gift, why not consider a subscription to our Hardback Book Club? Our legendary curators Malcolm Gladwell, Adam Grant, Susan Cain, and Daniel Pink handpick the two very best books every season and mail them to your dad's front door. If that sounds like something he'd like, use the code DAD20, that's D-A-D-2-0, for 20% off at nextbigideaclub.com. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger, sound designed by Mike Toda. You know what we hope we can still do when we're in our 90s? Work with the team at LinkedIn. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.